This episode of Outlines contains references to drug abuse and descriptions of a crime which some people may find distressing, so listener discretion is, as always, advised. Those who know me know that I don't always sleep well, and recently I've had far too many late nights and early morning debates with myself over how to approach today's cases. The reason for this is because they're framed within a certain narrative. There are some women whose names are mentioned again and again in lists of missing or murdered sex workers in the East Anglian region over a 10-year period. First, Natalie Pierman, whose case I covered a few weeks ago, who was murdered in Norwich in 1992. Then there is Mandy Duncan, who went missing in Ipswich in 93. Kelly Pratt, who disappeared in Norwich in the year 2000, and Michelle Bettles in 2002. Natalie, Mandy, Kelly, Michelle, the East Anglian sex worker cases, whose murders or disappearances have never been solved, and who are listed together so often in the same articles, despite there being no known connection between what happened to them. The conflict I've been having with myself is how to cover Mandy and Kelly's disappearances in the same episode without linking them together through their drug addictions and sex work. Unfortunately, there isn't enough information available on either woman's disappearance to produce full-length episodes, and so eventually I've hit upon the answer. Today, as I begin to move towards exploring the case of Michelle Bettles in the next episode, I will start in 93 with Mandy Duncan, then go to the year 2000 with the disappearance of Kelly Pratt, and while neither case has been officially linked to Michelle's murder, they do provide context to the atmosphere in which the women who worked the streets of Norwich were operating, and the ways in which the media would frame each individual's case. This will also allow me to cover the disappearances of two women who due to lack of information, I wouldn't otherwise be able to look at. Please understand that I wish to cover Kelly and Mandy's cases, but I'm not linking them, and I'm certainly not saying that their work ties them together. It's just that this is the only way I can cover them, given the limited information available. Usually, when I start looking at a new case... I find that I gather at least 6,000 words of paraphrased research before I begin to compile an episode. With the disappearances of Mandy Duncan and Kelly Pratt, I have just over a 1,000 words each. It's not that there isn't any information out there, it's just that much of what I can find is repeated from article to article, and especially in Mandy's case, most are no more than a few lines long. What really strikes me with Kelly and Mandy is how little has been reported over the years to add to what we know about their disappearances. I've covered four missing people so far this series, and the amount of coverage for each person did vary wildly, but there was always more information available than in these two cases, especially in the lead-up to anniversaries, and often with an increased emphasis on family impact, which is a little lacking here. The other thing to note is that there is a real difference in the speed at which the police and newspapers seem to have mobilised after Kelly and Mandy were reported missing, 
This is not particularly surprising, considering both were known to be drug addicts, and so the police would have seen them as being at high risk of impulsive behaviours. But it should be surprising, considering the increased dangers associated with sex work. In an article for The Guardian in 2002, journalist Maggie O'Kane, who had just released the Dispatcher's documentary Sex on the Street, told the paper, Of the women we spoke to, 73% said that they had been attacked in the past 12 months, and most, more than once. Almost half of the women said that the men got violent when they had asked for payment for their services. A quarter said that they had been threatened or stabbed with knives, and 8% said that they had been threatened with guns. In an article from 2018 entitled Sex Work and Occupational Homicide, the writers quote another article from 99, a study looking at sex workers in London, in which it was discovered that the cisgendered female sex workers' mortality rate was recorded as 12 times higher than women from the general population, and murder was identified as one of the leading causes of death. The 2018 article goes on to point out that the solve rate for what they term as work-related homicide has improved dramatically over the years with, quote, every single case in our database from 2006 being solved, compared to the 1990s and early 2000s, where high numbers of cases remain unsolved. These articles go some way towards illustrating the levels of danger associated with sex work, especially for those women who plied their trade on the streets. I tried to find information relating directly to drug use among sex workers, and the statistics I could find come from a 2008 article called Prostitute Homicides, a Descriptive Study, which has collated the works of several papers and suggests that between the 1980s and the early 2000s, the percentages of sex workers who injected drugs ranged from 20% in some places to as high as 73% in others, with a study from the year 2000 suggesting that up to 93% of their total sample had used drugs within the past month. Obviously, these statistics aren't specific to Norfolk and Suffolk, but they go some way towards illustrating the possible motivations and vulnerability of women involved in street sex work. This could not be made clearer than it was in Ipswich in 2006, when sex worker Paula Clonell, a heroin addict who would become the final victim of Suffolk Strangler Steve Wright, gave an interview to ITV News in which she told them that she had to work, saying, I need the money and that the killings had made her a bit wary about getting into cars, but that she would probably still do it anyway. Within a week of the interview, Paula would be dead. These statistics and studies highlight two things. The reasons why the disappearance of a missing sex worker should be treated with immediate seriousness, and also why they were so often not. Because, as a drug addict... A woman is seen as being more likely to act impulsively or without rationality and therefore are more likely to go missing of their own volition. 
There is a study from 2020 called Analyzing Local Newspaper Coverage of Murders Involving Street Sex Workers, in which Louise Wattis analyzes the coverage of five separate sex worker murders and disappearances from the late 90s and early 2000s in Middlesbrough. One of the women remains missing, four were murdered, and of those, two are solved. The study speaks a little about the ways in which the women's lives were framed and discovers similar patterns to those I've picked up on previously. How the newspapers desire to make a woman more obviously a victim by forcing the narrative towards their early life, in which they were a good girl, a pretty girl, a girl who was led astray by those around them. The study also suggests that these women are portrayed in two ways. First, as a vehicle to highlight local issues relating to things like sex work, drugs and violent crime. And then second, as a victim, through family interviews and the reclamation of the women themselves, who are then recategorised to fit a mould we recognise, the good girl led astray. You'll see how these narratives play out in a familiar way over the course of the coverage into the disappearances of Mandy Duncan and Kelly Pratt, and how some of the issues surrounding the ways in which they went missing, specifically their drug dependencies and the dangerous nature of their work, informed the kind of coverage their cases received, and still do receive. This pattern can be seen throughout the history of these kinds of crimes, and is a huge topic that I'm only just scraping the surface of here. I hope, though, that you can see these patterns in the ways in which I tell you about the upcoming cases, because I'm not choosing to use a certain framework in my coverage of these women's disappearances. I'm just working with what has been given to me, and where possible, I'll try to point out the ways in which it seems as if failings have occurred. I'm Jess Carter, and this is the Outlines Podcast. We start today in the market town of Woodbridge in Suffolk, which is situated about nine miles from the centre of Ipswich, on the banks of the River Deben. Woodbridge isn't far from where I used to live, and my main memories of the town are all at night time, five of us squashing ourselves into a van as we headed down the A12 and A14 once a month to a cosy pub in the centre of the picturesque town to perform our poetry to a sometimes captive audience. All that feels like another life now, and on the day I visit, the first Friday in March of this year, I'm heading outside of my usual stomping grounds, barely further than the Welcome to Woodbridge sign, and to a small council estate on which you can find Balliol Close. There's a photograph from 1993 of the Close. It's taken from just in front of the road sign, looking towards a row of terraced red brick council houses. They were maybe built in the 1950s, 
the kind that have just enough character to be interesting. In the photograph, you can see that one of the large front windows in what appears to be the second house along is covered in a plastic sheeting. This is the house in which 26-year-old Amanda Duncan, or Mandy as she was known, along with her two young children, once lived. Nothing much has changed between that 1993 photograph and my visit. Some of the fronts of the houses have been updated, but mostly it's identical. So much so that I want to get out of the car and take the same shot at the street sign. There's too many parked vehicles though. It's the middle of the day and a man in a white van who is pulled over on the opposite side of the road is watching me a little too intently. So instead, I settle for a few photos snapped through the car window as I marvel at how similar the area still looks to the photograph. It was in this house that Mandy's nine-month-old son was found alone in his cot on the morning of Saturday the 3rd of July 1993 by her sister Karen, who had called around for a visit. Mandy, who had last been seen the previous evening, was now nowhere to be found. Amanda Jane Duncan was born in Suffolk in 1967 to parents Colin and Irene Duncan. Sadly, I've struggled to find any biographical information and so I actually have nothing at all to tell you about her early life. We do know though that by 1993, the year she went missing, 26-year-old Amanda, or Mandy as she was known, was a single mother of two young children Jamie, born in Suffolk, who was three years old, and Damien, who had been born in Norwich and was just nine months when his mother disappeared. Almost every account of Mandy tells you how dedicated she was to her children, with Andy Guy, head of the Norfolk and Suffolk cold case team, saying in 2018 on the 25th anniversary of her disappearance, she came from a good family. She was a fantastic mother, there were several references in the inquiry about how well she looked after her children, and they were clean, well-fed and well-clothed. Even though there were reports that she'd previously disappeared, most notably for a few months when her eldest son Jamie was just 15 months old, she was not the kind of woman who would up and leave a young baby alone in the house. And to compound her family's worries, a search of the house led to her father discovering that Mandy, who had what would later be described as mounting debt problems, had recently received a letter threatening her life if she did not pay up what she owed. The amount, it would later be reported, was only around £100, and the letter writer was traced and later eliminated from police inquiries. But for Mandy's family... Her unexplained abandonment of nine-month-old Damien, coupled with the threatening note, was enough for them to warrant calling the police to report her missing. As police started to look into the events of Friday, July the 2nd, 1993, the day before Mandy's disappearance, they began to build up a picture of her life and last known movements. They learned that during her previous absence, she'd been living in Norwich, where she was probably involved in sex work. And it had been a period of months before she had contacted her family to let them know where she was. But that since moving back to Woodbridge, she had been in regular contact, 
with one paper describing it as at least once a day. Police also learnt that Mandy was a regular drug user, a habit she had, according to friends, been looking to kick, but that while she was still addicted, she had probably turned to street sex work as a result of her mounting debts. She had a boyfriend, described in one newspaper as Burley Paul Andrews, who knew of her lifestyle, but would later tell the papers, I was horrified when she told me. I said she should stop, but she insisted it was all she could do. I warned her she could be attacked or even murdered, but she said she knew the risks and would be safe enough. Now, it looks like she could have been abducted by a customer. He claimed that Mandy had been driven to what the papers described as vice in order to buy food for her children. On the day that she disappeared, Mandy's father Colin called round to pick up three-year-old Jamie from her home on Balliol Close. There is no information about how she spent the rest of the afternoon, but we do know that later that evening, at around ten past eleven, despite his horror at her lifestyle, Mandy's boyfriend Paul dropped her off in Ipswich at an address on London Road where she intended to buy drugs. He then returned to Balliol Close to babysit Damien. Paul would tell the newspapers that I was expecting her home later, but she never turned up. I stayed overnight, but left in the morning before her father came round with her other son. I do not get on with him. This is the very simple explanation for how Mandy's sister found nine-month-old Damien home alone on the Saturday morning. Not so simple, however, is to unpick what happened to Mandy after she was dropped off in Ipswich the previous evening. To try to follow her movements, we have to begin where Paul left her that Friday night, at an address on London Road. If you're not from around the area, and you've heard of London Road, it's probably because it was the street on which the man dubbed the Suffolk Strangler Steve Wright lived for a few months before his arrest in 2006. The road has a long reputation for being an area rife with drugs and sex work, one which apparently stretches back long before Steve Wright lived there, and, despite an improvement following the events of 2006, it reportedly continues to be affected by the same issues to this day. I actually have a friend who used to live on London Road back in 2012 to 2013, and she told me that while she was there, a drug dealer lived on the opposite side of the street, and that the drugs and sex were everywhere in that part of town, going on to say, it's a right shithole round there, a quote I enjoy promising her that I'll use directly. On the Friday evening that Mandy vanished, she did not immediately purchase the drugs from the house on London Road, but instead agreed to come back when she had finished work to finalise the deal. Presumably, her intention was to go off and earn the money needed to pay for the drugs, and then return with the money to collect before heading home. At around 11.30pm, after her stop on London Road, she was dropped off a short way away on Portman Road, where her plan was to look for business. Like London Road, if you're interested in true crime, you'll probably know about Portman Road. It's a place perhaps equally as famous for being the heart of the red light district as it is for being the home of Ipswich Town Football Club. 
Despite having driven down London and Portman Road plenty of times during the day, I've never done so at night. So one evening, earlier this month, I chose to do exactly that. Following the murders in 2006, there has been a dramatic decrease in the number of women working on the streets. Back then, there were somewhere around 30. Now that number is down to anywhere between 2 and 9, according to one article from 2021, with the women still operating in London Road and the surrounding areas. The night I visit, there's no one about. It's only around half nine at night, and the roads are mostly dark. The area around the football stadium is closed for roadworks, and the only sign of life on London Road are the windows that glow a neon purple, or flicker with TV light, and the one terraced house where two men in dark clothes huddle outside, lit in the glow of weak orange street lamps as they smoke under their porch. The area is obviously not affluent. One house is completely boarded up, and most of the larger houses seem to have been split into flats. But it's not too bad on the surface, just an ordinary run-down road, the kind that you probably avoid walking down at night, but that isn't so unique. You can find roads like that in any large town or city. After Mandy was dropped on Portman Road at around 11.30, her movements over the next half an hour are unclear. We do know that at around 11.50pm, a red Ford Orion was spotted in the area, although the driver would later be traced and eliminated from inquiries. After that, the last probable sighting of Mandy occurred at around midnight that evening on Portman's Walk, an industrial area not far away from the football ground. The night I visited Portman's Walk, I found myself picturing 26-year-old Mandy, who was dressed in a black leather bomber jacket, a pink knee-length dress with no sleeves, and a gold cross and chain, as she talked to the driver of a blue or green Ford Sierra. This driver has reportedly never been traced, and what happened to Mandy after this point remains a mystery. Nowadays, Portman's Walk is dark, and despite the nearby main road, still isolated. And I can only imagine how much more so it would have been in 1993. While visiting, I found the idea of anyone having to work there late at night, leaning over to talk to strangers in cars to get the money for drugs, just unbearably sad and scary. It's easy to imagine a multitude of terrifying circumstances that could have begun on those dark streets. Mandy had previously been cautioned by police for operating in the area, and they told her that she was at risk while she continued to work there. This is a risk that police now believe proved to be fatal. On the 25th anniversary of her disappearance, head of the Norfolk and Suffolk cold case team Andy Guy told the newspapers that police have conducted proof-of-life inquiries and she had never, ever appeared on the radar anywhere. He said, It's very difficult to conduct your life vanishing out of thin air. People need to use banking and telephones and all the things we need to have a daily life. She was a very good mother. Her children were well-dressed, well-cared for, and to just disappear with a nine-month-old child at home is not really a possibility. 
Despite what police now believe, in the aftermath of Mandy's disappearance, the investigation reportedly begun by working on the assumption that she had gone to Norwich, as that was where she had last disappeared to. But by mid-August, a month and a half later, they began to fear that something criminal had happened to her. And in September of 1993, Mandy's case was featured on the now long-forgotten ITV show Missing. Unfortunately, I can't find the episode anywhere online, but it's reported that following the show, more than 70 calls were received, including several unconfirmed sightings. On the 25th anniversary of her disappearance, Suffolk Police revealed that they had had 71 possible sightings reported to them, although it's unclear how many of these might have been a result of the show. The police also revealed that over the course of their investigation, they had identified nine sites at which her body could have been left. Despite these statistics, a Freedom of Information request made by the BBC has revealed that over the course of the investigation, no interview of a suspect has ever taken place. During the anniversary appeal, Andy Guy told reporters that he believes that there are people who were very close to Amanda in her friendship circle that know or suspect what became of her. He appeals for those people to come forward, saying... To my mind, Amanda was involved in two high-risk activities. I believe the people around Amanda at that time know what became of her, and it's those individuals we're trying to reach out to. Reading between the lines of this appeal, it sounds as if police believe that whatever happened to Mandy was not the result of a chance encounter with a punter, and that, in all probability the sighting on Portman's Walk at midnight was not the last time she was seen at all. There is something very frustrating about Mandy's case. I suppose it's the lack of detail, the lack of any kind of viable lead as to what happened to her, and the knowledge that, perhaps, the fact that she had disappeared before might have influenced the speed at which the investigation began, because... Despite her having previously been cautioned for working the streets and identified as being high risk, detectives first had to establish that she had not left of her own volition. She disappeared without warning from a dangerous area of Ipswich after failing to return to collect the drugs to which she had a dependency. The signs that this was not a voluntary act on her part were definitely there. And while we can't know for certain that police reacted too slowly to her disappearance... It is a pattern that has been seen previously in other cases where sex workers have gone missing, and certainly a pattern that would be seen all over the country time and time again. This is all the information available on what happened to Mandy Duncan. In 2023, it will be the 30th anniversary of her disappearance. In 1993, her father Colin was quoted as saying, We don't care what she has been doing. We just want her back safely. In 2018, DCI Andy Guy said, She came from a good family. She was a fantastic mother. There were several references in the inquiry about how well she looked after her children, and they were clean, well-fed and well-clothed. Those two children have grown up not knowing what happened. 
this sentiment still stands. If indeed someone out there does know what happened to Mandy on the evening of Friday the 2nd of July 1993, despite the passing of time, for her family, it will never be too late to find out the truth. The second woman's case I'm going to cover in this split episode is that of Kelly Louise Pratt, who disappeared from Norwich's Red Light District, the area I talked about in the previous episode, the one known as The Block. Kelly's disappearance, in June of the year 2000, occurred eight years after Natalie Pierman's murder, and seven years after Mandy Duncan vanished in Ipswich. Again, biographical information has been a little difficult to come by, but what we do know is that Kelly was born on the 4th of February 1972 in Newcastle-upon-Tyne. She grew up in Biker, where she was raised by her mother Gloria, and after leaving school, she worked in a care home in Gosforth. Sometime around then, she met Michael Pratt, and together they had two children, both boys. By 1998, Kelly and Michael's marriage had broken down, with Michael later saying, I finished up hating Kelly when I found out she'd been on the game. One of the neighbours couldn't hold on to her secret any longer and told me, but there was nobody who ever loved Kelly as I did. Following their divorce, Kelly moved down to Norfolk to be closer to her mother Gloria and younger brother Leon. All of this timeline is a little vague, but we know that by the time she was in Norfolk, she had become addicted to heroin and at one point served a jail sentence after being caught shoplifting. Following her release, it is reported that she returned to Norwich, where she took up sex work to fund her drug addiction. Despite this, she was by all accounts a happy-go-lucky, friendly person, who was close to her mother Gloria, and wasn't one for visiting places she was unfamiliar with. In March of 2000, 50-year-old Gloria underwent a major heart operation, and during her recovery period, Kelly continued to visit her mother every few days. This was until Sunday the 11th of June, 2000. Kelly, who despite having lived in Norfolk for a couple of years, had reportedly only been in the Norwich area for a few weeks, and on the night in question, she was dropped off by friends in the city road area, close to the red light district. Kelly was described as being white, five foot four inches tall of medium build with fair hair, which she wore either in a Mohican or down if she wanted to hide the shaved sides. Her arms were reportedly badly scarred. That night, she was wearing a black miniskirt, black t-shirt and a light blue coat and was carrying a black drawstring bag. The last confirmed sighting of Kelly took place at around 11.30pm that evening, when she was seen talking on her mobile phone outside the Rose Inn at the junction of Queen's Road and City Road. Following this sighting, there were reports that minutes later, two women were seen arguing in Kensington Place, just down the road from the Rose Inn, although it's never been confirmed that Kelly was one of these women. She had arranged to get a lift from friends not long after this, and when, uncharacteristically, she didn't show up at the correct time, they immediately contacted the police. 
As with so many missing person inquiries, the coverage into Kelly's disappearance was a little slow to get going. The first article appeared in the Eastern Daily Press on Thursday the 15th of June, four days after her disappearance, and was little more than a scant rundown of the information available. By the 16th, it was reported that there was a team of 10 officers, led by Detective Chief Inspector Bill Gorham, assigned to her case. And despite the fact that Kelly had taken neither a bag nor any clothing with her, Chief Inspector Gorham told the papers that he was still hoping for an innocent explanation for her disappearance. By Monday the 3rd of July 2000, with Kelly now missing for just over three weeks, the team assigned to her case had grown to 18, and they had between them interviewed 98 of her known associates, as well as circulating posters around the area of the red light district known as the Block, and a little further afield to Brakendale and City Road. There wasn't much to report on in the coming weeks, although it appears as if Bill Gorham's team had been busy searching alleys, gardens and the roofs of shops and flats in the area where she was last seen. They even sifted through drains in an, in an attempt to recover any of Kelly's belongings. Most important of which was her mobile phone, a Nokia 6110, which bore an unusual fascia, which was two-toned blue or green, depending on the light. The phone had not been used since the night of Kelly's disappearance, and in the coming months, detectives trawled second-hand shops and put out appeals for anyone who might have come across her phone to come forwards. PC Kimberly Deal, spokesperson for the investigation, told the papers... The fact Kelly's phone has not been used does not necessarily concern us, but it does give us further cause for concern. It's a very unusual phone, so it's fair to say a shop owner would remember it. If Kelly has not got the phone, it could mean it has been discarded, damaged or sold. By Monday the 14th of August, it was being reported that six similar phones had been found in the area, including one in the back of a refuse van. Detective Inspector Martin Jelly said, We've ruled out four of the mobile phones so far, and we're still looking at two. One was particularly interesting, although now it is looking less likely that it was hers. While the mobile phone inquiries were stalling, police were also anxious for anyone to contact them at their headquarters if they felt as if they had information with Detective Chief Inspector Bill Gorham taking to the papers to appeal for two people who had phoned the police with information to call again. One was described as being a distressed woman, the second an embarrassed man, both of whom called without leaving their names and ended the call before divulging any information. By this point, it's obvious that police were becoming increasingly concerned that something bad had happened to Kelly. And on Thursday the 3rd of August, a press conference was held at police headquarters in Norwich, where her mother Gloria told the gathered reporters of her concerns for her daughter's safety, saying, She wouldn't have stayed by herself. She always had to have someone with her, her friends or family. She wouldn't run away like this. She was 28. She didn't need to run away. 
Later, in August, as the search for Kelly moved to her hometown of Newcastle, the sentiment would again be echoed by police spokesperson Kimberly Deal when she said, as Kelly's mum said during her appeal, if she was still alive, she wouldn't go to a strange place. We don't believe Kelly is in the Nor Norwich or Yarmouth area, and Newcastle is our next step. At the Newcastle press conference, Kelly's aunt, Violet Batista, said, the family is not coping very well at all, because it's such a long time now, and we're worried for her safety. We're hoping if she does see this, that she will get in touch with someone to let us know she is safe. This is a very hard situation, because you see things like it on TV all the time, but you never think it's going to be you. I think if she was safe, she would have phoned us by now. As for Kelly's ex-husband Michael, the father of her two sons, by now aged five and nine, in mid-August, just after the Newcastle press conference, he told the papers that, despite the fact that Kelly had not seen her sons regularly since the divorce, she had sent them cards and attempted to keep in touch. He said, if she were to come forward, he would be happy to let her see the boys. Going on to say, it's a very genuine offer and they're all very concerned. Despite these appeals, Kelly did not make contact. And as August of 2000 drew to a close, the media's interest in her disappearance began to wane, as it always does when an investigation drags on without any new leads or information emerging. In the wake of the 2006 murders in Ipswich, there was some renewed interest in her case. And in 2007, Kelly's ex, Michael, wrote a letter to the Chronicle, a regional paper from the northeast of England, in which he said he believed Kelly to be dead, saying that she didn't just vanish into thin air, she was murdered. He is quoted as having written, when Kelly died, a part of me died also, and what's left of me is carrying a huge load of guilt on my shoulders, which is something I'll have to bear for the rest of my days. There is not a day goes by when I don't feel close to breaking down. And there's a couple of times when I've just felt like putting an end to it all and taking the coward's way out. But I can't do that. Not while I have two sons. Kelly was murdered and her body's still out there on the outskirts of Norwich somewhere. What I've given you here is all the information I can find on the disappearance of Kelly Pratt. There have been few leads since she vanished, the best of which was the unusual two-tone mobile phone but that has never been traced, and police didn't even manage to establish if she came to harm after meeting a client, or if it were another scenario that led to her going missing. Echoing Michael's sentiment from 2007, and the same article, Gloria Carpena, Kelly's mum, said, I have known for a long time now that Kelly is not coming home. I have feared the worst, because she would have been in touch by now if she was alive. In the next two years, Kelly's family would suffer from two more losses, with Gloria's brother-in-law passing away from heart failure and her sister dying of cancer. Gloria herself died in 2015, and since adulthood, Kelly's brother Leon has been in and out of prison for a number of different offences. 
spurred on by an addiction to alcohol, which had begun as a result of what he claimed to be domestic violence he'd witnessed growing up, and compounded by Kelly's disappearance. Like in Mandy's case, and despite her mother dying without ever knowing what happened to her, someone, somewhere, must still know what occurred that night. Gloria Carpena said, What I can't come to terms with is that her body has never been found. It might be too late for Gloria, but there are still people whose whole lives have been affected by what happened to Kelly. The answer must be out there somewhere. Someone knows what happened that night, and perhaps this is fanciful, but maybe the truth could help her family finally start to come to terms with her disappearance and the impact it's had on all their lives. I hope you've enjoyed this slightly different episode of Outlines and that the double cases haven't been too jarring to get through. It was a difficult one to research and write, but I hope I've managed to do both Mandy and Kelly justice. If you want to support the show so that I can afford to continue to bring you regular episodes, then as always, I'd ask you to head to www.patreon.com forward slash the outlines podcast, or you can send a one-off donation via PayPal to the outlines podcast at gmail.com. Thanks to those of you who are already helping to keep the show going, including my new patrons, Debbie Riches, Nick Trina, Boogie Woogie, Caroline Clark, and Angela Beastie. As always, all the links will be included in the episode description, and thank you all for listening. This episode of Outlines was researched, written, performed and produced by Jess Carter. The music was composed by Elias Hardy.